Ernie Ray talks about the coronation of the Queen 70 years ago and the role of the monarch as defender of the faith. The discussion includes Rabbi Julia Neuberger, Martin Palmer, Dr Daniel Loss and Dr Jasdit Singh. The Queen swore an oath to maintain the laws of God and to maintain the privileged status of the Church of England, of which she is supreme governor. Every coin in the country proclaims that by the grace of God she is defender of the faith. I remember the coronation. It was the first time I ever watched television. The set was in the factory where my father worked. The screen was tiny and the picture fuzzy. But I can recall the sense of mystery and awe, especially at that moment which cameras were not allowed to witness when she was anointed with oil. Times have changed. What does it mean to be defender of the faith in a multi-faith country where 70% of those under 24 say they have no religion and only 2% of young people in Britain identify with the Church of England? How will Prince Charles interpret the role of defender of the faith when he becomes king? And how different will his coronation be? Joining me are Martin Palmer, who was Prince Philip's religious advisor on the environment. Rabbi Julian Neuberger is a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Dr Jasjit Singh is Associate Professor in the School of Philosophy, Religion and the History of Science at the University of Leeds. And Dr Daniel Loss from Harvard University is an historian of modern Britain. The crucial moment in the Queen's coronation was when the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, anointed her with holy oil, saying these words. And as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so be thou anointed, blessed and consecrated queen over the people whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and govern in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Very profound, sonorous words. Be thou anointed, blessed and consecrated queen over the people. Martin, what do you make of that claim that the queen has been consecrated, made holy by God? Well, there are many different ways of interpreting this. A way of interpreting this was that there was a divine right by which the kings and the queens ruled, which was, if you like, made manifest in them being anointed. And the divine right of kings has been used at certain times to justify the actions of kings. But actually, in the, in the English tradition on the whole, certainly since the end of the 17th century, the notion that actually the people had the right to choose the kind of government they wanted, and that if it was a king, they jolly well hoped she or he would be appointed and blessed by God, but not necessarily sacred. Jasjit, as a Sikh... What did you make of that coronation oath? So in terms of authority and who, who's given the Queen authority, the, the clip you just played for me demonstrated that the Queen got her authority from the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it was, it was the Archbishop of Canterbury who actually bestowed that onto her using his definition or his relationship with God. And the fact that, as Martin said, every monarch claims divine authority and in, in this case, the authority was given by the head of the Church of England. Julia, what did you make of it? Well, 
like you, I actually just about remember it. I was on the streets of London on my father's shoulders watching it. Um, so what do I make of it? I make of it something quite different in a way. There's something about the ceremony and the anointing that is to make the monarch separate. And I think it's really important that in Hebrew, the word kadosh, holy, sacred, also means separate. You separate out somebody. Something holy is separate. Danny, how does it resonate on your side of the Atlantic? From an American perspective, so much of this feels so strange and and almost a little bit bizarre. And what really stands out to me is the sonorous language. And I think this ties in with what Julia was just speaking about, making the monarchy and the queen separate. It is the strangeness of the language, the archaicness of the language that I think actually gives the ceremony power. And this is something we've seen in more recent decades with controversies over changes in liturgical language and whether that sort of does the work that ceremonial is supposed to do. Danny, we should explain very briefly, if you would, how the title of Defender of the Faith came to be given to Henry VIII. Yes, it's a very interesting and and somewhat complicated history. Pope Leo X actually bestowed that title upon Henry VIII for his defense of Catholicism against Martin Luther's um, claims in the early Protestant Reformation. Of course, Henry VIII and the Church of England subsequently broke with with Rome, and the Pope, unsurprisingly, withdrew that title of Defender of the Faith from um, Henry VIII. In the 1540s, Parliament stepped in and decided that Henry VIII was, in fact, entitled to the title of Defender of the Faith, um, which was then passed on to subsequent uh, monarchs. So it began as actually a Catholic title, but then was bestowed by Parliament. Martin? When we were looking for a model to give power and this sort of authority uh, to one person who probably had got there because he was slightly nastier than the rest and better at fighting and had more people he could throw into battles... There was this question of, well, what on earth will restrain him? And, of course, the answer was nothing on earth, which is why you had to then begin to intercede with the notion that actually they were responsible before God. And that certainly is the theme throughout the coronation services that have taken place for over a thousand years in in England. And I I like very much that notion of being separated. I, I think that's a fundamental notion. This was a person set apart who was therefore expected also to do more to be just than just simply to do what was expedient. But it has meant that there was a legitimation for overthrowing a ruler who was not towing the line, who, and from the 12th century onwards um, in England, you had a, a theology that said, if the king or the queen no longer supports that which is good for the people, that which is, as it were, seen by God as good, then you had a right to overthrow them. Honey, what do you think is the fundamental raison d'etre of the title Defender of the Faith today? So, to, And I think this is where there's been a dramatic shift. It was very much about defending the rights and powers of the Church of England. I think what has happened in large part due to the Queen's own interest in making the shift is it has been a shift from the notion of defender of the faith and not even to defender of faith, as Prince Charles um, suggested several decades ago now. But actually, I think what has happened is a defender of faiths in the plural, that what has happened is that there is greater recognition of faith communities as communities. And the Queen has played a critical role in pushing the Church of England towards accepting that. And through the Church of England, I think uh, the rest of society has, has come to see faith communities even more so than religious individuals as worthy of protection. And just within that context, it means that she 
is there to defend the right of religious groups to have a voice in the public sphere. Uh, mm. She's there, in a sense, to acknowledge people who have faith. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that's what would matter to minority faith communities. What does it actually mean practically for the Queen to be defender of faith? So, for instance, if faith communities are facing faith-related issues in the workplace or in schools, obviously you wouldn't expect the Queen to get involved in those in every single case, but the, the, the title itself seems to imply that the, the monarchy or there would be at least be some kind of contribution to the debate in the public sphere. You know, there would be statements, you know, from the monarchy, let's say, if if a Sikh, you know, couldn't wear a turban in the workplace, for example. So I think that that's that's the sort of thing that, that, that the minority you know, communities would would want to see from a defender of faiths overall. Julia? I found the... Uh, Her Majesty the Queen, the most extraordinary uh, defender of faiths. And actually, I think that both her role and that of the Prince of Wales in acknowledging the role of other faith groups, and I can really only speak very specifically about my own faith group, but the the fact that it's almost a a deliberate holding out of the hand and bringing us in to a whole variety of different things. I think this has been a remarkable shift, a remarkable and deliberate shift. And certainly in my experience, quite long experience now as a a rabbi, I've been asked to preach in pretty major Anglican institutions in the context of a Christian service, but being very obviously Jewish and very obviously not able to say quite a lot of the prayers. And I think that's remarkable and new. Uh, Danny, it it has to be said that the Queen has been far ahead of the Church of England in encouraging, for instance, multi-faith dialogue and worship at a time when the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Dean of Westminster were very much against it. She was pushing it. Yes, that's exactly right. And when I was actually doing this research in the archives, it was actually quite striking to see how much Buckingham Palace was actually pushing the Church of England and the Archbishop of Canterbury to to embrace the opportunity of of multi-faith worship. And the Queen actually made explicit that, or Buckingham Palace at least made explicit, that Commonwealth Day services, she wanted to be multi-faith and she wanted them to take place in a church. The Church of England and the the Diocese of London had said, well, if we're going to do this, maybe we should do it in a secular building so there's the theological issues are avoided. And the Queen said, you can do that, but I'm only coming if it actually takes place in a church. But there's a difficulty with that, which is, of course, by saying that it should be in a church, and I'm wholly sympathetic to her with that, but by saying it's within a church, she actually does exclude some people of other faiths who will not come into a church for a service. So that there is, I mean, so for instance, some of my uh, Orthodox fellow, fellow Jews would not enter a, a church for a service. So if she insists that it's within a church context, and I think actually she was right to do so, it is also excluding, whereas if it were in some general public building, then the same would not apply. So I think there's something quite interesting bound up in all of that too. I've been thinking about a coronation service when Charles becomes king. Uh, It will be different, I suspect, from the last one. It will be multi-faith. And if I really let my imagination run riot, we could have reading from Khalil Gibran, we could have Sufi dancing in the aisles, we could have Sikh drummers in the choir stalls. I know that's fanciful thinking, but Martin, what do you think that service will actually be like? Well, the royal family have been 
very forward in encouraging exactly that kind of ceremony. Prince Philip has hosted in Canterbury Cathedral major events where you've had Chinese dancers, Sikh drummers, you've had Muslim call for prayer given from the pulpit, etc. So I think we need to sort of loosen up a bit on the royal family. Charles certainly has a deep fascination in religion. He's deeply attracted, actually, I think, more to Orthodox Christianity. He goes on retreat to Mount Athos every year than he is necessarily to the rather dry bones of Anglicanism. Um, but he has, as, as Julia said, he has a deep fascination in religion, particularly Islam. And I think he will make sure that what we do in Westminster Abbey is recognise that this is a sacred place for the nation. Julia, can it properly be a multi-faith service if it takes place in a Christian place of worship? I think it, it could be difficult for some, but I personally think that it is likely that the next coronation will take place in Westminster Abbey. I think it is quite possible that it will be a Christian framework, an Anglican framework of a service, mm. but with contributions from other faiths. And as those faiths take their part, it will be the Church of England as first among equals, but there will be a recognition of parity from the other faiths. And I think that that is a likely way for the next coronation to take would place. Would that be acceptable to you, Julia? I'd love it. What about you, Jazjed? For the Sikhs, would there be any difficulty of having a coronation within a Christian building, Westminster Abbey, within the context of a Christian service? Sikh worship, Sikh uh, you know, rites of passage take place in a Gurdwara in the presence of the Guru Granth Sahib. And unless that happens, it's not really an authentic Sikh rite of passage. Now, there's no reason why Sikhs couldn't contribute to a broadly Christian ceremony, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a Sikh ceremony. It would be a Christian ceremony to which uh, Sikhs had maybe contributed a reading the, uh, or, or the like. And the fact that it, it, would, it would take place in Westminster Abbey wouldn't necessarily matter, but it, it, it just wouldn't be a Gurdwara. So another idea could be that the monarch could, could be coronated in Westminster Abbey as normal and then maybe do some kind of tour of significant places of worship which belong to other traditions as well, you know, in the following few weeks or whatever. Well, I suspect a great deal of thought has already been given to it. My thanks to Jasjit Singh, Daniel Loss, Martin Palmer and Julian Neuberger.
Alan Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his shorter God Spots, and today he has one on the Holy Spirit. Ever heard the word paraclete before? Sounds like a painkiller, doesn't it? Or maybe it sounds a bit like parasite, but it's an old-fashioned word that was used about the Holy Spirit. A paraclete's an advocate, like a lawyer in a court case. That's one of the reasons God gave us the Holy Spirit, was to speak up for us. Now, is it because we're such terrible sinners that we need Perry Mason to get us off the hook with God? Is God some big judge up there who's going to hammer us if we don't come up with a good enough excuse? Well, I hope not. <clears throat> not with the list of things that I've done wrong. No, it's more just that most of us actually find it very difficult to approach God, to pray, even when we know that he loves and forgives us. So God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us begin to get off our chest. And if we're worried or angry or frightened, he puts our case, whatever it is. That's a paraclete for you. Hey, come to think of it, it is a bit like a painkiller. Multiple blessings to you. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Lo, then I would wander off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go about it upon the walls thereof, Mischief also and sorrow are in the midst of it. Wickedness is in the midst thereof. Deceit and guile depart not from her streets. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. Let death seize upon them and let them go down quick into hell for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He hath delivered my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many with me. God shall hear and afflict them, even he that abideth of old, Selah, because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. He hath put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. He hath broken his covenant. 
The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. But thou, O God, shall bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in thee. to 
Matthew Roger is a retired minister living in Ailith. Matthew is the local minister at Pilocrae Church of Scotland. Every Sunday he has some first thoughts to illustrate the point of his sermon. Today we hear about primary school children's ideas about God. The teacher asks the class, Do you know, boys and girls, where God is? And up shot a forest of hands. And one young lady didn't wait to be asked. She said, God is in heaven. Well done, said the teacher. You're right, God is in heaven. Oh, no, he's not, shouted a little boy. Oh, no, he's not. What do you mean, Jimmy? Why do you not think God is in heaven? Because he's in the bathroom. And the teacher looked at him. He's in the bathroom. Aye, my dad gets up every morning and says, by God, are you still in there? (laughs) I would wager that that person in the bathroom was a lady. I I shall now run to the door to escape. God is in the bathroom but he's also in the kitchen and the living room. God is in our workplace. He is in those places where we enjoy our leisure and recreation. God's presence is with us all the time. Speak to him. Listen to him. Accept what he would give to you. For Jesus promised that God would send his Holy Spirit and that Spirit would enable us to be the kind of people that he wants us to be. Jesus showed us how one could live loving God, knowing that God loved him. And there is Jesus's own present, his own gift. My peace I give unto you. Do not 
be worried and upset. Do not be afraid. 